This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Summit Racing's Paul Sokolis with special guest, automotive paint and body expert and educator, Kevin Tates. Here we go. And we're back in Radio DJ parlance. Um, how you doing, On All Cylinders Podcast fam? Took a couple weeks off, but uh, now we're back for what we're calling Season 3 of the On All Cylinders Podcast, and we're kicking it off with someone who uh, pretty much needs no introduction, but since I get paid to do it, I'm going to introduce him anyway. Kevin Tates uh, is joining us on the show. You may have seen him on TV. He's a paint and body wizard, and perhaps more importantly, he's a, he's an educator. He's the guy behind the Paint Education University series, and he's always eager to help demystify the whole paint and body uh, process. So that said, uh, Kevin, welcome to the show, and thanks for being on. Paul, thank you guys for having me, man. I've been working with Summit Racing and a fan and, quite frankly, a customer for a long, long time. So it's, it's kind of neat to be uh, to be here with you guys. But we'll get into the nitty gritty with some specific paint questions and, and topics later on. But um, let's talk about you, man. What made you decide to pick up a spray gun? And, and then once you did, can you kind of describe how your passion for paint and body kind of translated into a career? Well, OK, so we're going to do the 100 mile an hour, 30,000 foot view version of this. but I kind of grew up around cars and my dad was a paint and body guy. And, you know, I just picked up a certain amount of it through osmosis when I was a small kid. But when I actually decided to get a real job, um, body shops were the place that I went. Uh, I tried to be Van Halen for about 15 years and we see how that worked out. So when I decided to have an actual career, um, I, I started into paint and body work and, and I'd been cross-trained a little bit, but, you know, I started off at the ground floor, literally sweeping the floor and got my skills up, got some certifications, got my courage up and got to the point to where I was brave enough to to produce an instructional video on fundamentals. And it, that was in 1998. So it's been a hot minute. And from there, I, I worked the phones. I tried to figure out what my market was. I found um, a marketing foothold with some catalog distributors. And then, uh, you know, that taught me how to be a journalist because I couldn't afford advertisements. So I would write articles for free and trade them out for advertisement in the back of books. And because I was doing video, I was unafraid of the camera. So when opportunities came up to do walk on stuff for some TV shows, uh, then I was I was comfortable with that world. And that led to a screen test on DIY Network. And in 2004, I had my very first TV series called Classic Rides on the DIY Network way back when DIY had automotive stuff. And from there, when Stacey David ended up leaving the truck show, there was a vacancy at RTM Productions and Power Block. And when I was asked to do that, I said, of course, yes. So I did uh, the trucks TV show until 2014. And um, the whole time up until, gosh, up until 2004, I was full time in collision repair and doing side work and running education and all that kind of stuff. So you got to love something to work that hard on it. And I do. I love this industry. I love the fact that it gives me back as much as I put into it. So these days, when I'm able to you know, speak at commencement ceremonies or talk to students or mentor people, I always talk about how how rewarding this career is. And, and that that fuels me. And it it's it's one of the things that drives me forward into doing what I'm doing today, which is creating high school shop programs and, and college programs for collision repair. Because as we all know, we've got to usher in the next generation of people that are going to perpetuate this hobby. So that's kind of the really long blathering sentence of, of what got me here. And the whole time I'm a student of this whole industry. I'm a student of learning and, and I love the changes in the whole process. Now, you alluded to paint education. 
Can you talk about that for a brief moment, kind of explain its its mission? It started out as I can help guys. You know, I wasn't bold enough to think that I was the best at anything, but I knew the fundamentals really well because of my certification classes and because of the success that I was having in body shops. So I felt brave enough to hang a shingle out and say, hey, I can help other people. And like I said, I want to give back to this industry. Uh, there's a lot of times where people are have have got their arms crossed and they say, well, I had to learn the hard way. So you have to as well, especially in these days with these um, Facebook forums and groups where it can be a little harsh sometimes, right? So I, I don't want to be that. I want to be the, the, the person that helps and the person that can give back because people gave me a leg up. People gave me a shot. People saw some something in me that they, they thought was worthy of investing in. And I want to turn that around. I believe that's how the world works. So education for me is my way to to do that, to to serve the community and the industry that has, quite frankly, given me a career that I can't possibly have dreamt up. I, I'm living the dream. Now, don't get me wrong. Nothing's a gift. Nothing is provided free of equity. Um, so we all work hard for what we do. And my business is no exception. But like I said, I truly do love this industry and, and I want to give back. And paint education, it's a mixture of paint and education. And it's the perfect way for me to to do this and, and, and help out when I can. And honestly, that's that's why you're here right now. And we're having this conversation uh, because Summit Racing on All Cylinders, our, our mission aligns directly with yours. We want to help people challenge themselves to, to learn skills, to develop their skills, whether it's painting a car or rebuilding an engine. It all starts with education. Um, so with that said, uh, are you ready to start answering some questions from our audience? Fire away, man. Okay, so before we scheduled this interview, um, we reached out via social media to our audience to, to basically prompt us with questions that, that we should ask you. And the first one comes from Howard, and his is eerily specific. Um, he simply asks, why does 1990s paint clear coat peel? And then he follows that up with, you know, how do you repair it? So it sounds like he's got a vehicle from the 1990s and the clear coat's peeling. What can you tell him? So here's a little bit of history with uh, the evolution of paint coatings. I started in the collision repair industry in the, in the later days of lacquer, the transition to um, acrylic lacquer, to acrylic enamel, to uh, urethane enamel, into polyurethanes, and now into waterborne. So there's a growth that this industry goes through. In the 90s, most of the OEs started to go to a, a two-stage paint system, which is a base coat, which is your ground coat color, followed by a clear coat, which is the protection layer. So the reason a lot of the 90s um, OEs are flaking and peeling is because of the fact that it is now not one single sandwich of coating. It's literally two layers. So now why does it peel? What happens is that clear coat deteriorates. And with a factory paint job particularly, there's a certain amount of UV screen or UV strength or resistance that that coating has inherently. As it ages, UV rays go literally through the clear and they oxidize or deteriorate the ground coat color layer underneath the clear, causing it to separate and peel. It's just a byproduct of the coating system itself, combined with the fact that factories use minimum tolerances and they put just enough paint on there to last three, uh, 36,000 miles, right? So your second question, if I can babble on, how do you repair it? There's no way to repair on top of that without sanding and getting rid of the old deteriorating clear coat. Sadly, you can't just put a patch on top of it because what you're going to do is just cover up what's going to eventually get worse anyways. We've all seen the cars going down the road where the cloudy edges are and it's flaking off and it looks terrible. Once it's to that point, you've got to sand it flat, 
You've got to get the old coating off of there, put a good primer on it, sand it and prep it for paint again. There's just no shortcut. So it sounds to me like his only course here is is to strip it down and reapply the coating. Is is that the only option? Does he have anything else he can do? You know, sometimes there is. You know, I wrote a book a couple of uh, years ago called um, Creating and Preserving Patina. Um, it, it might even be in the summer racing catalog. I don't know. But it was a fun experiment on, on Fotina, which is basically it's distressed furniture for cars. So there's a lot of people that that believe that it's more important to get the cars on the road and driving than it is to do full restoration. And I'm a student of that philosophy as well. I like it. But what I wanted to do with the book is to teach people a little bit of how to do realistic patina instead of the stuff that maybe doesn't look so great. So there's a lot of uh, sub-industry coatings off of there, patina preserver. Uh, there's some coatings that are brush on clear coats that are satin that will help seal in that layer and preserve the patina a little bit longer. So I'm fine with that. Just because I, I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm an instructor, I'm, I'm a, a technical student of, of this whole industry, but there's nothing wrong with you, you know, band-aiding a patina coating just, to, just to, to have a summer where you can go to some car shows. Well, I think that's a sentiment we can all get behind. Um, I'm going to jump ahead with our audience questions um, because we're already kind of touching on this subject already. Roger B. writes us to ask, what is better than uh, a single stage paint job or the two stage base coat clear coat system that uh, you were just talking about? A single stage paint job means that the, the color, the gloss and the strength of it are all built into one layer that's typically in about three coats. And the way that paint works is that it cures from the bottom up and it dries from the top down. So as this layer cures, your three coats blend together with about five or 10 minutes in between coats and it becomes a film. It becomes a cross-linked, my best and most favorite analogy because I love M&Ms, is that it becomes the M&M shell and the candy all at once. Whereas a base coat clear coat or two-stage finish is a color coat followed by a clear coat that cross-links a little bit together, but it still predominantly stays two layers. So that's the thing. A single-stage finish is sprayed all at once. You pull the trigger the first time, and you're committed to finishing the paint job. The two-stage or three-stage, or these days even four-stage finishes, you have a chance to stop, assess, repair, and move on at every stage of those paint jobs. So there's the nucleus of what uh, the different, basically the two different paint styles are. People ask me all the time, which is easier to shoot? Logically, it seems like single stage might be easier to shoot because it's just, it's easier. You don't have to think about clear. You don't have to think about color distribution. But the truth is, if you can take your time and stop, a base clear paint job, a two-stage paint job gives you more freedom to relax and see the process. Step back, bring an alternate light source in. If you got some dirt in it, you could sand it out and then recoat it again. It literally is easier to paint. So when I'm coaching people that are, ha are doing their first paint job, I gently recommend that they do a two-stage or do a, do a base clear paint job as their first one, just because you have that much more control of it. That is kind of interesting because you're right. It, it is counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, I really do want to get to some general uh, 101 style paint topics. But before we do that, let's uh, have one more final uh, question from the audience. Dennis R. writes in to ask, how many coats of primer is too many? And having helped paint a car myself before, I, I kind of feel his pain on this one. So talk about that. Is it possible to over-primer a car? Yes, let's talk about that. Um, and the answer is yes. <laughs> so people have a misconception over what the word primer means. Primer is like the word bondo. Bondo is now a metaphor for polyester surface enhancement repair material, a.k.a. body filler. 
Bondo is a trade name. Primer is an idea. Primer is not one specific product. So what you have to do when you think about primer is you have to think about what primer that you're using and what purpose it's going to fulfill. So a lot of people use a primer sealer, like an epoxy coating. If they have their, their project sandblasted and they want to protect it from rust, they put a, a coating of epoxy primer on it. Well, epoxy primer is not a high build primer. So you can't sand it and you can't build it up again and, and flatten out and block out your panels with it. So that's a primer sealer. That's primer number one. Primer surfacer is typically a urethane. It's designed for three, maybe at the max, four coats. And it's typically used in collision repair for basically straightening out your bodywork and prepping for the application of the paints. That's your primer surfacer. It's high build, but it's not crazy high build. Now we come in with the big dog, primer filler. And it's a polyester composition, which is exactly the same thing as your wipeable body fillers are. It's a polyester with either a um, an MEKP catalyst in or a benzoyl peroxide catalyst in. It's literally spray Bondo. That's primer filler. Now, all of your custom car show guys, and I was at this unbelievable uh, car show event this weekend, and, and just great, unbelievable workmanship. Uh, the best in the industry was there. Every one of these custom shops uses polyester primer filler as a last stage of bodywork. So go back to how many coats is too many. If you're using an epoxy primer sealer to just cover up the metal, chances are one coat is going to be just fine. You don't want any more than two coats on there because it's not designed to build up. It's designed to seal out atmosphere. Primer surfacer, more than four coats is going to be too much because it's not designed to tolerate that huge mill thickness. However, your primer fillers, I've got overmix pucks on my bench tops that I can literally hammer nails with. That They're an inch and a quarter thick and there's no pinholing, there's no cracking. It's not doing anything because there's almost no solvent in it. We can talk about the, the virtues and the enemy of solvent if you want to. But I know that's the long answer, but sometimes a question like that needs a long answer. So the question that comes back is, well, how do I know which one to use? When you go to the Summit Racing website and you call up a paint product, if you scroll all the way down past the customer reviews, past the other information, you're going to see two downloadable PDFs. One is a uh, MSDS and one is a TDS tech sheet. And the TDS tech sheet will tell you everything you need to know about that product. People miss that so often, Paul, and they think that the instructions are just sort of a suggestion. The TDS sheet, technical data sheet, is literally your Bible when it comes to this stuff. So when you're buying from Summit Racing, you can either go to the internet, because I've done this when I've lost my tech sheets for the Summit Racing stuff that I spray, and, and punch in single-stage Summit Racing TDS. You'll get it instantly. The easiest thing is when you're ordering it online, go down to the very bottom, download your, your PDF. That way you can pull it up on your phone. You can print it off. So to answer the guy's question, he doesn't need to ask me anymore. Now what he needs to do is go to his technical data sheet that he got from the Summit Racing website. And it will literally tell him how many coats are necessary, how to prep it, sandpaper grit, gun recommendation, fluid tip size, between coat times, all of that stuff, right? Uh, yeah, uh, specifically for Summit Racing. If you can't find it at summitracing.com, uh, I know you can use the uh, contact us button and uh, they have that information readily available. You get that really quickly. So that said, let's kind of take a, a departure from the audience questions and, and start at square one talking to folks who may be considering doing a DIY paint job in their home garage. What advice can you give them to help them along their path, uh, to help them take that first step to, to making this happen? 
there's a couple of things and th this conversation this question we could talk for hours on this but but here's the 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 overview of that yes it's a complicated procedure it's a long chain of procedure but every link in that chain is ridiculously simple so if you look at it like that choosing your sandpaper sanding a panel it's really nothing more than just a mechanical activation just a mechanical procedure then you move to the next one the secret in paint and body just like electronics just like everything else is finding the correct steps in the procedure so people say all the time that oh painting's an art and it's voodoo and i couldn't do that i'd, I'd rather stick to machining you know cylinder heads and, and engine blocks and to me that's voodoo electronic can bus diagnostics that's all voodoo to me because i don't know what those little atoms are and where they go i don't want to let the smoke out so the truth is you have to understand that it's procedure and it's quite simple when you break it down to each individual step so that's my first advice to somebody that says i'm i want to do my own paint job but i'm kind of scared so from there, you have to dive into the education part of it a little bit. And that's that's really the, the reason that, that I started producing instructional videos is to give people an insight into the basics of the basics of the fundamentals of doing this. You know, if you're going to be spraying paint, what are you going to be spraying with? The first thing that you buy is not the spray gun. That's the last thing that you buy. The first thing that you buy, which I call the heart of your shop, especially if you're using pneumatic or air-powered tools, is an air compressor. The icons in the industry and the, the industry standard is pneumatic driven tools, DA sanders, all the different pneumatic tools, even your drills and, and impact tools and things like that. It's all driven by an air compressor. We know that we can't blow through a straw and power an impact wrench that's air powered, right? We have to have a big honking compressor that's going to do that. So when you look at your spray guns, there's always going to be a recommendation. It's CFM stands for cubic feet per minute. We have to measure PSI, which is pounds per square inch. That's our, our pressure coming into the gun. But CFM is what we need to break up paint. It's what we need to drive that impeller in that impact wrench. So the very first thing, if you're going to start off on a paint and body project is outfit your child. You might have a great compressor. You might have enough compressor, but make sure that you've got the right tools in which to do the job in the first place. Sometimes it takes a while to save up enough money to, to make a, a good home shop. And maybe sometimes you can do the body work at your place with your smaller compressor and find a buddy with a big compressor or rent one or something like that when, when it comes time to spray or find somebody that's going to lend you their spray booth. And maybe you don't have to spend that $1,000 on the compressor. These tools are expensive, but once you buy them, typically that's the last time you have to buy them if you purchase correctly. So I'm hoping I'm answering the question. There's no one five-minute answer to what do you say to somebody. Here's the thing that I offer, whether it's social media or whether it's through emails or things like that, or people that, that buy my Paint Education University course, I make myself available for consultations. And I'm not trying to pitch my stuff. I'm not trying to talk about that because I want this to be information that people can take home and use. But you got to find out where they're starting from and what they have. And, and sometimes the answer is, you know what, maybe you shouldn't try this yourself. Or, but, but most of the time, here's one of my famous quotes. You can buy the materials, you can buy the tools, and you can screw it up twice so that when you succeed on the third time, it's still cheaper than taking it to a shop to have it done. And guess what? You learned how to do it yourself. I can't tell you how many small businesses have been started with the help of paint education videos and somebody empowering themselves enough to have that first success, to have that first win. Then they go to a car show and somebody says, hey, man, your car looks good. Who painted it? You know, the, the the amount of pride that just rings off of people when they 
they track me down and they tell me, hey, man, thanks for your help. I've got a I got a, a best of show for my paint job. And and now this guy wants me to paint his car. Guess what? This is America. It's the land of dreams. It's the land of small business and entrepreneurs. Many, many entrepreneurs have been started by being empowered enough by doing something successfully to, you know, maybe get a either at the very least a good side hustle going. Right. America, land of the side hustle. I kind of like the sound of that. Um. But let me ask you that same question in kind of a different way. Um, when folks approach you about learning to paint, getting the fundamentals down, is there a common question or a common misunderstanding that keeps coming up that, that you find yourself having to address time and time again? Hmm. When they're beginning the journey, people, people have a misconception of how long it's going to take. So, you know, we had this discussion. There was, a, there was a round table that I was a moderator and a participant in this weekend at the car show. And it was me, it was Chip Foose, Dave Kindig, Steve Mank, and Jesse Greening. The accolades that that crowd has. Now, I've had my own shining moments, but oh my goodness, not, not anything close to those guys. So it was a privilege to have that round table and, and to be able to um, be in on that, you know. And one of the questions came up was time investment. And in a nutshell, we talked about this scenario. So if it takes 3,000 hours to get a car into where sheet metal is hung, from that point forward, to do a Chip Foose job or a Dave Kindig job is probably another three to 4,000 hours after that. Now, here's the deal. There's not that many hours in a year. It's going to take us 15 years if it's a one-man show doing 3,000 hours. A shop like that, they've got a team of people on it. The reason Overhaulen was able to do a high-end custom in eight days was the power of compounded labor. You have a team of 60 people working 24 hours a day uh, in different shifts. Yes, you can add up, you can do that math. The time was put in. Uh, we did a show on PowerBlock called Search and Restore, hosted by Tim Strange. He picked the teams. We would do that same type of thing. We'd get three to 5,000 hours worth of labor done in a two-week time frame. And you can do that even though there's only, you know, regular work hours. There's only eight hours to do that. The way you can cheat labor is by adding more hands, more sets of hands. So it's kind of a misnomer anyway. I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole, but but the time that it takes to do these jobs is 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 immense. So let's break it down just a little bit. Let's say we have an eight-hour day when we're at work, Monday to Friday, right? 40 hours. That's the standard. That's 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 where we're at. So now we got Saturday and Sunday. Most people have a spouse that have a house, right? So there's a maybe a garage in the back or an attached garage that the project car is in. So Saturday, um, and this is me. This is where I draw these times from. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody or anything like that. Uh, maybe I like to sleep a little bit later. Maybe I sleep until six or seven on Saturday. Uh, and it's, so Saturday, I had a couple cups of coffee at breakfast. It's eight o'clock and I get out into the shop, find my favorite um, Sirius XM station. It's nine o'clock by the time I'm working. So if I go nine to four, that's great. That's about six and a half hours. And maybe the same thing on Saturday, on Sunday. So maybe I've got 12 hours of real work time in on my car. That's pretty good on a weekend. My wife feels neglected. My dogs think I'm a stranger when I'm coming back in the house. And my neighbors, they don't like the smell coming out of my garage. But that was a good weekend for me. So if you consider your average paint job is going to take you probably 200 hours just for a scuff and shoot, no color change. How many 12-hour weekends are going to take to, to make your 200 hours? It's going to take a lot of weekends. So it's going to take that dedication. The way I coach people the best on this is I say, break it up into that. Be realistic with your expectations. How much real time can you put in? Are you the type of person that can put in five hours a night every night after work, where you can actually get 20 to 30 hours in a week? Well, then that 200 hours, maybe in a couple months, you can kick a paint job out. Most of us that have a, an, another career, 
uh, and have the opportunity to work on our projects on the weekends, it's going to take a couple of years worth of realistic weekends. So then it's up to you to figure out how to budget your time properly to make it happen, to be ready for next car show season. Does that does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I apologize. I was counting on my fingers and toes, um, all the tasks that are involved in, in a full-blown paint job like that. And even again, we're kind of assuming that the person in question has some skills um, already. But if we take a step backwards, I'm assuming there's some degree of talent and skill development that goes on beforehand. So can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, do you have any advice for how folks should practice painting before they get to a real automotive project? I absolutely do. In my Paint Education University course and in some of the in-person consulting and classes that I have, I use Hobby Lobby craft paint, water-based craft paint. Now, it's it's aerosolized, so you want to wear a mask and some safety glasses, and you don't want to get it on your fingernails. So PPE is super important, and I hope we get a chance to talk about how important it is. However, I use big cardboard boxes, my favorite spray gun, and craft paint. I use a crawl, walk, run philosophy when I teach people how to spray paint. And when you do this, I can teach somebody to proficiently spray paint with the proper gun setup in about 30 minutes. Then it's up to then just working and, and, and understanding that muscle memory. So my best advice for somebody that's never held a spray gun in their life or maybe has and hadn't had success with it, get some big cardboard boxes, some craft paint, thin it out to about the same viscosity as a paint would be, and just practice. Here's the other thing that I love about the Summit Racing paint products. They're very affordable. They are very affordable. Paint over the last, since 2020, like uh, so many hard parts and, and products, paint costs have more than tripled over the last few years. I love the fact that you guys, Summit Racing, are continuing to keep your prices affordable. Even though there's been increases, it's still a very affordable paint line. The reason I bring that up is because craft paint on a cardboard box is not going to give you the feedback on the panel that a real automotive paint product is going to. So step one, get your spray gun out, run some water through it, pull the trigger, see what happens. You don't need PPE for that. Step two, get your craft paint, thin it down just a little bit, practice your overlaps, practice your gun distance from the panel, practice what happens when you just hammer it and just coat it so hard that it runs off onto the floor. Figure out what it feels like to fail when there's nothing at risk. Then go to your local body shops, Local body shops typically throw that stuff away. If it it's more labor than it takes to replace the panel or to buy the panel, they're going to throw the fender away. And it's hazardous waste for them. They, they, will, they will let you go to the junk pile and get free panels. I do it all the time. If you don't have that resource, go to a pick-apart or a pull-apart. You can get it super cheap. There's no excuses for not having a three-dimensional panel. The reason you need an actual automotive panel is because it takes paint different than a flat panel. So step three. Go and get some kind of a fender or a door and prep it. Download your TDS sheets for your materials. I particularly like this, the Summit Racing single stage stuff. My 600 horsepower LSA powered LS1 Miata is a beautiful red paint job with Summit Racing single stage. But the base coat clear coat systems, you can buy a quartz worth to get yourself familiar enough with the materials to the, you understand how they act how they react. And you're not going to break your heart. The the biggest mistake people make is they get set up, they do all the sanding, they do what have you. It takes hours and hours of setup for sanding. And then the masking and masking tape these days is almost 10 bucks a roll sometimes, depending on the tape. And then this is the first time you've ever pulled the trigger on your project. Not a good strategy. And then things go horribly wrong. Then you figure out that your 20 gallon compressor with a one and a half horse pump is not enough to do a full size pickup truck. So the time to figure out those things is on practice panels before you do it. 
I get it. People get impatient. People, they want to see that result. They want to see the shiny paint and they go to the car shows just like I did this last weekend and get super pumped and inspired. Don't put the cart before the horse. Crawl, walk, run. Get used to the equipment. Get familiar with it in your hand. Get used to how it sprays. Get used to how it sprays with automotive paint on an automotive panel. Then once you've got your legs up a little bit, it's going to cost you maybe a hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks in materials. Let me tell you, the preparedness that that is going to give you when it comes time to actually paint your project, you will really appreciate this advice when that happens because you're going to be ready. You're going to be ready for for a lot of things that might go wrong. Yeah, that's great advice. And I didn't even think about raiding the old uh, collision shop's backyard scrap pile either. Oh, dude, yeah. Yeah, the big piles of parts out back or the, the plastic bumper covers. Yeah, a three-dimensional part because it takes paint different, right? A big a piece of plywood or a piece of sheet metal from an HVAC company, not the same, not the same. Paint hangs and surface tension holds it in and magnetic charges on the panel make it do crazy things with metallics. And you got to be ready. You have to get that feedback in a real world scenario before, you know, you spend your money on products. It's not difficult to spend thousands of dollars on paint materials just because of the fact that it's sophisticated chemistry. It's an expensive product line. Even on the most affordable things, I think my Miata, uh, we spent just under $1,000 on filler, masking materials, primer, sealer, and paint products. It was amazing to do that car for less than that. Granted, it's a Miata. I didn't do the door jams. So it's a small project, but I love the fact that we could tell that story for people that are interested in in a a lower budget paint material setup that uh, that quite frankly does a very nice job. We've been talking for a bit, um, but we haven't touched on a topic really in much detail that that I really wanted to get to, and I know you do as well. So can you talk about PPE, uh, the safety equipment uh, that you'll need to get started? Can you describe to someone that may not be familiar with it what a good PPE setup would look like? First of all, you have to understand why you need PPE, why you need a good paint mask instead of a uh, like a wet bandana draped over your nose. You know, we've all seen the TV shows where there's the the, the moron with flip-flops and, and beach shorts on with his mask hanging around his neck and a cigarette in one hand and he's spraying a candy job in the parking lot. I've literally seen that on TV and it's irresponsible and reckless and it's dangerous. So I don't want to freak anybody out, but guess what? As paint products have gotten more sophisticated, they're more highly concentrated. They have to be thicker. They have to be more powerful and dry faster because let's face it, collision repair drives this industry. Cycle time in the shops drives this industry into a more efficient type of material. Thus, the costs go up. Thus, the concentration of the, the things that'll hurt us are tighter and more heavily packed into these materials. So I remember literally seeing training films where the PPE that the guys had on assembly lines is a lab coat and a pair of safety glasses. And they're standing, you know, 15 inches away from a car going down the assembly line in a factory spraying without a mask on. That was in the 50s. It's not the 50s anymore, folks. This stuff is packed with um, the, the most dangerous, uh, invisible, and odorless contaminant. It's called isocyanate. It's the main activator to the hardeners in the paint. You just have to protect yourself from it. A good cartridge-style mask is good. One with a full face is better. If you can't afford that, get a good cartridge-style mask. Get some good safety glasses that fit to your face. And that right there is probably 40 bucks worth of it, worth of an investment. I, before I move on, or the, the best possible scenario is a supplied air or a fresh air setup. I've got one from a company called Hobby Air. And honestly, I'm not sure if Summit sells it or not, but the Hobby Air setup, it's a, it's a self-contained fresh air device. 
you put the the air pump somewhere else where you're not going to get paint overspray and it pumps it up into a full face mask and it's positive pressure. It's more air than your body could ever take in, thereby it displaces and pushes out all the contaminations. Fresh air is by far the best thing that you can do to, to protect yourself from paint fumes. If you can't, if you can't afford it, a full face charcoal respirator setup is the best way. If you can't afford that, because they're a hundred plus bucks, then a good set of goggles and a brand new fresh charcoal filter cartridge paint mask with a good seal. Your mask is only as good as the ha- seals on your face. Beards are back in style. It's very difficult to get a good seal on your face if you've got facial hair. I, I have fresh air hoods that I wear all the time in my booth, and I have a little bit of facial hair. I don't want to shave my face to, to go and do a paint job every single time. Um, so so I, I use the fresh air setup because, you know, frankly, it's, it's the best way to represent this industry and how to properly do it. I get it if you can't. But here's one thing. If you're going to use a charcoal respirator, I want to pass this on. Do a sniff test. Fit your mask up to your face. Get some bathroom air freshener. Spray it in a halo around your, your body and stand there. If you can smell the air freshener, guess what? You don't have a good seal. If you can spray bathroom air freshener, if you can't smell that freshener, guess what? You've got a good seal. Then you cover your eyes because one of the things that activates polyisocyanate hardener is moisture. So what's, it, what's in your sinuses? What's in your eyes? Mucus, moisture. That stuff will literally cross-link in your eyes, and it gets itchy. And after a point, you're gonna you're 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 gonna start having allergic reactions to it, and that's just the way it builds up in the body. So I know that's the long answer, but it's super important to understand PPE and to understand that you have to protect yourself. Um, I've known guys in the industry that have had to leave the industry. A good friend of mine was 18 years in a very successful career in collision repair, and he had to walk because he was sensitized to polyisocyanate. It felt like an elephant standing on his chest. He had severe muscle aches. His knees were going down and he literally lost consciousness one time in the shop. And it came down to he's allergic to polyisocyanate. He had to change vocations 18 years into a successful career. I'm not trying to freak anybody out or scare anybody, but we do as responsible technicians and as good humans, we have to treat our bodies properly. We got to be we have to be proactive with PPE. Certainly, whether you're just getting started in the trade or have been doing it for years, uh, safety uh, gear is something that needs to be continually reassessed and, and talked about. So now going back to our, our hypothetical person who is uh, undertaking their first DIY paint job in their home garage, you know, again, considering they probably don't have access to a billion dollar paint spray booth, what are some weather and climate concerns they should take into account uh, before undergoing a job like this? I mean, I kind of guess what I'm saying is, is there a good time of the year to paint? There absolutely is. And that's a great question. So paint products are designed to work best at 50% uh, relative humidity and 72 degrees Fahrenheit with with, um, adequate air movement. Literally, that's in every manufacturer's um, instruction sheets on what the best conditions are to paint in. So depending on where you are in the country, at some point during the year, you're going to have perfect conditions. In Arizona, maybe it's December. Those conditions are springtime here where I'm at in Tennessee. In California, well, you lucky suckers, it's all year round. So you can access that that beautiful temperature and that beautiful atmosphere uh, whenever you want to in SoCal. However, it's designed, all this stuff is designed to work best at 72 degrees Fahrenheit, 50% relative humidity with adequate airflow. That said, what I tell my students that may you know, maybe they have to paint in conditions in, in Texas and it's 105 degrees. 
paint kind of shuts down uh, at the low end below 60 degrees is dangerous to paint below 50 degrees you will never get your hardeners activating it will be bubble gum on your panel and you're going to be really freaking sad above 100 degrees you're out of chemistry you could put extenders in or extenders in but they're hard to come by and they're not for every paint system and literally 100 degrees you might be even over 100 degrees with the temperatures on your panels so you're not going to be painting. You're not going to have any success. It's going to go on and be grainy and sandpapery. And your metallics are going to model. You're not going to have success at 100 degrees. However, here's what I teach. There is as much as a 30 degree differential between daylight and dark. And so what you have to do is access when your conditions are as close to perfect conditions as possible. It's 105 degrees in the day. What time of day is it 75? 3 a.m. That's the answer to that question. So guess what? You coffee up at 2 a.m., you get your project prepped the day before, and you spray your stuff at 3 a.m. What's wrong with that? I literally created a second shift at one of the busy body shops that I work at. It was a GM dealership, and we had to outsmart the weather because we didn't have an air-conditioned shop. My studio, I'm ruined. My studio is air-conditioned now, and I've been in TV for 20 years in air-conditioned studios, but, but it wasn't the case when I was in collision. I literally would come in at 3 a.m., get my prep or get everything masked up, do my spraying before 10, do my polishing before noon, and then I'd go home. I created a second shift to access that time of day. And quite frankly, the time of year dictated that. So there's your answer for that. There is a paint season. Um, that's why all the magazines have your paint and body specials in the beginning of January, because guess what? Coming up pretty soon, the weather's going to be nice enough to paint. But the time of day matters as much. And here's another Easter egg. We've all heard about the perfect white paint job, and then the house fly comes in. The big bottle fly just comes in a kamikaze right in the middle of the hood, right? It's like, oh, no. Because the other thing that happens when you get an insect in your paint job is they lose control of their bodily functions, and you get a stain around the bug. <laughs> it's no fun, man. So the way we can, we can help avoid insects is by time of day as well. Think about this. When you're grilling outside about 3 o'clock, you're throwing the steaks on. Well, here comes the mosquitoes. Bummer. Then there's the flies. Bugs are lazy. Bugs like to sleep in. Get up before the bugs, do your spraying before noon, and you're going to have 10 times less insect damage in your paint jobs as you're going to have if you started to spray afternoon. So there you go. You're welcome. <laughs> That's a good one. If you remember nothing else from this interview, just remember that bugs are lazy. <laughs> um, can I, I'll ask you a similar question because um, I hear this a lot. Are some color shades easier to spray than others? Um, you hear some people say black is the toughest color, then black is the easiest color. Do you have any insight on, on that and what uh, shades work best for the DIY home uh, painter? It's interesting because color is a whole different thing. Color, there are, there are more difficult colors to spray when it comes to your two-stage metallics. The light silvers are typically a challenge. Gold colors, gold metallics are a particular challenge. And it's because of the way we see them through the lens of the clear coat. It matters more. The darker colors, they seem like they're easier to spray, even though technique is identical. They just show us less. So as far as a color that's, I'm going to say, a solid color that's the most difficult to spray, believe it or not, it's white. You get snow blind with white. You start staring at it, and it literally it, it, um, it overpowers your eyes. It wipes out your eyes, and you get snow blind. And you have to look away and purge your eyes and look back at the panel, especially when you're into the shiny clear layers. It can really blind you. And I've run into that many, many times. So white is going to be one of the most difficult colors to, um, to spray. Uh, your gold metallics are hard to spray. Your light blues um, and your silvers. 
And it's not impossible. It just requires a little bit more diligence, a little bit better technique, and more important than anything else, proper chemistry selection. So let's talk about that. We just talked about this is a way to make all of your colors easier to spray. And I've got some videos up on the Summit Racing website on the videos, and you guys are sharing them, and I love this. So proper chemistry selection, we don't have to be chemists to understand how to do this. We have to understand the condition and the temperature that we're spraying and pick 10 degrees above that. If it's 70 degrees, go for 80 degree chemistry. If it's 88 to 85 degrees, go for your cold, your, your, your slow reducers and catalysts, your 90 to 95 degree chemistry range. If it's 95 degrees, seriously, give it a second thought and start again in the morning when it's cooler. If it's below 60 degrees, same thing. Put the shop heater on, get your metal temps up. But if you're between 60 and 70 degrees, well, then you know to reach for 70 degree chemistry. It's that simple. So once you reach for 10 degrees above your ambient, ambient air temperatures, you're going to be right in line for your paint to do what it's designed to do, which is flow out of the gun rather than being forced out of the gun. Kevin, um, I'm looking at my watch now, and we've been talking for over 40 minutes uh, about all sorts of painting topics, and you know better than I, we have barely scratched the surface. And I apologize for using the word scratched back there, but say someone's appetite is sufficiently whetted, um, they want to tackle a, a paint job, where can they go to learn more? Where can they get more advice from you? So I have a website, it's it's the Paint Education Learning Center. So on the top menu, you can find... Uh, there's there's a menu for products, but there's one called you know, Free Tech Tips. Guess what? It's my YouTube channel. There's a whole bunch of free tech tips uh, on on painting. And, you know, I charge for my videos because it costs a lot of money to produce my videos. And and quite frankly, I was making my living doing that way before I was making my living doing television. So it takes such an amount of resource that I have to charge for my programs. I wish I could have everything that I do for free and maybe, maybe someday. So you can buy my products if you want to enroll into the really super advanced courses. Go to the free tech tips page. Heck, go straight to YouTube. Even with Summit Racing, there's lots of great free paint tips that you guys have. And I love what you guys are doing on that level. But Kevin's free tech tips, it's right there on the top menu in paintucation.com. Here's another fun thing, too. It was my job on the, the Trucks TV show. I was the paint and body guy. My co-host, Ryan Shand, was the mechanical genius. So I love the wheelhouse that I had. Well, the production company has recently dumped all of our whole back catalog on YouTube. And, and of course, we were we were partners with Summit Racing the whole time there. So I know there's at least one paint job where we're using Summit Racing paint, particularly a project called Super Dooley. We do a two-tone, two-stage job on a body swap Dooley, a, a, a 79 Ford on a 97 Dodge chassis. Uh, we had my rock star buddy, Randy Borcharding and Brian Finch come and help me spray the thing. And there's a lot of great tutorials on Project Super Dooley. Go to YouTube, look it up. It's the Summit Racing branded paint. The paint job turned out flawless. Three different shooters, three different painting styles, perfect continuity between all the painted panels. The system worked. So if you go to the YouTubes, you're going to find all kinds of crazy great information. If you want to use Paintucation um, instructional videos, you can either buy DVDs if you still have a DVD player. I have streaming formats and also my online trade school style courses, Paintucation University and Passion to Profit small business courses. Uh, the different ways that they're all broken up. That's all online too. And if anybody has any questions about anything, it's info at paintucation.com or Kevin at paintucation.com. That's the best way to get in touch with me. If you got any questions about the free stuff or the stuff, the, the, the formalized courses that I have, that'll really get you good solid foundation on this whole industry and, 
and how to get started in doing this the right way. Now, that's, that's really good information. And more importantly, it's so awesome that you toss in your own personal email. That's just handy to have for anybody, whether you're planning to do a DIY home job or if, like you, you want to translate your passion for automotive bodywork into, into a career. So we're unfortunately about out of time here, Kevin. Um, do you have any parting wisdom that you'd like to pass on before we uh, turn the microphones off? Uh, Paul, I'm so excited to be able to pass this information on. It is such a wonderful world. And once the light bulbs start going off, trust me, if you're intimidated about it now, once you have a couple of wins under your belt, it really will start paying you back. And and you're, whoever is listening to this out there, you're going to have success. Just give it a chance. Give yourself some credit for following the procedures and, and be brave. You just go in and don't be afraid. You know, there's no such thing as failure. There's only learning. And you know, if you if you follow my philosophy on crawl, walk, run and your practice sessions and going up to a low cost investment on good automotive paint, then you're going to teach yourself how to have success doing this. And you're going to find out the weak points in your system and your and your tools along the way so that you will be prepared when you really commit to it. And that is a really good sentiment to end on because we got to wrap this up. Uh, We've been talking with Kevin Tates all about automotive painting, uh, specifically from the perspective of a DIYer in their home garage. Kevin, thank you once again for talking with us today, and uh, hopefully we can do this again soon. Cool. I can't wait till next time. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.